this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming and not throwing anything at me on stage. <laughs> this is episode 142. With the Spartathlon in Greece starting this weekend at the end of September, this is an encore episode about the first year in 1983 when the classic 153-mile race was held in Greece. <laughs> Guess what? I released yet another new book on Amazon this week, the sixth book in the ultra-running history series. It is part three of the 100-mile history. It covers 1977 through 1979, including the most detailed account published about the first three years of Western States 100, cutting through the myths, and compiling the pioneer experiences of many of my listeners who ran in those first races. Get it on Amazon. The title is Running 100 Miles Part 3, A History, 1977 to 1979. Spartathlon, an ultra of 153 miles, takes place each September in Greece, running from Athens to Sparta, with a 36-hour cutoff. It is one of the toughest ultra-marathons to finish. In episode 88, I told the story how Spartathlon was born in 1982, the brainchild of an officer in the Royal Air Force, John Foden. Three servicemen successfully covered a route that was believed to have been taken in 490 BC by the Greek messenger Pheidippides. The 1982 trial run set the stage for the establishment of the Spartathlon race. The race's 1983 inaugural year is covered in this episode. After John Foden and two others finished the historic 1982 trial run between Athens and Sparta, Foden told those at the finish, you need to make the route we have run into a race. However, he did not think seriously that a race would be organized anytime soon. Mike Callaghan, an Athens businessman and a member of the British Hellenic Chamber of Commerce in Greece, was the driving force and the founder of the formal Spartathlon race. Just four months after the historic 1982 RAF expedition, the Hellenic Amateur Athletics Association announced that Spartathlon would be held on September 30th, 1983. The name for the race combined the Greek words for Sparta and feet. A multinational team of supporters came together led by Callaghan. John Foden said, my idea to have a race would have never taken off if it were not for Callaghan's energy, enthusiasm, and talents as a salesman. And so the stage was set for the holding of the first international Spartathlon race in the autumn of 1983. By the 26th of September, 45 ultra-distance runners from 10 countries, including Greece, had gathered in Athens. The youngest of them was 22, the oldest 54. Most, however, including a woman athlete from England, were between 30 and 45 years of age. They arrived in Athens four days before the race and took a two-day bus ride to preview the course. I will highlight a few runners. 
Yanis Kouros was born in 1956 in Tripoli, Greece. At the age of 16, he began formal athletic training and started running races. At first, his coach dismissed Kouros as being a mediocre athlete who just didn't have the build to go fast. But he progressed to be one of the top high school runners in Greece. In 1977, at the age of 21, Kuros ran his first marathon in 2 hours 43 minutes. His times continued to improve to 2 hours 25 minutes in 1981. By 1983, the year of the first Spartathlon, Kuros, aged 27, had finished 25 marathons, but he was not well known outside of Athens. He said... I read about a race from Athens to Sparta. I wanted to sign up. I had confidence I would complete the race and that I would probably be the first Greek to finish. Eleanor Adams was born in 1947 in England. She started running as a teenager and joined an athletic club but as a girl was not allowed to run further than one mile on the track and two and a half miles on the road. She later progressed the middle distances in cross country and ran competitively until she married John C. Adams in 1970. Adams then gave up running for the next eight years and had three children. In 1978, at the age of 31, she took up jogging again to try to regain some fitness, but soon caught the racing bug again. Soon she was running sub-three-hour marathons routinely. I never even heard of ultra-distance running. At the time, in, in the early 80s, I was focusing on being a marathon runner because women were just starting to be accepted into marathons. A British women marathon squad was established with the top 10 women marathon runners, and Adams was ranked 12th. Her primary goal was to make that squad. But on a whim, she went to run a 12-hour race at Nottingham, intending to stop at the marathon distance, but things went so well that she kept going. As she ran, the race director told her that she was on pace to break the women's 50-mile world record. I thought the race organizers was having a joke when he told me that I was about to break the 50-mile world record. And then I said, oh, don't be silly. No idea about world records, so never across my mind. Anyway, at the end of that, I ended up with three world records. Adams, age 36, heard about Spartathlon from Malcolm Campbell, an experienced ultra runner and an influential British running administrator who offered to arrange for her travel to the race with a large contingent of the top British ultra runners. Adams had difficulty being allowed to run in the inaugural race because she was a woman. What? The main thing for me is the difficulty I actually had in being accepted into the race because the whole ethos of this race was based on a military event. The organisers were very much against having a female competitor and it was only due to the intervention of the male ultra runners that I was allowed to compete. So I didn't know until the very last minute that I was actually going to be going. Finally in Greece, on the bus previewing the course and sightseeing, she said, I think it'll be a tremendously exciting event and the challenge of the course, the heat, the conditions. 
Dusan Mavlier, age 30, was from Yugoslavia, now Slovenia. He started his running career in 1977 while serving in the army. He said, In the barracks with soldiers who were master skiers, we were recruited to take part in a patrol run. I competed, and Slovenians as a skiing nation, of course, strongly beat everyone else. Mavlier took up ultra-running in 1979, running in several of the massive 100-kilometer races, and gained experience going over 100 miles by reaching 128 miles in a 24-hour race in Czechoslovakia. He signed up for Spartathlon, confident that he would do well. He said, I am a fanatical long-distance runner, so you can imagine how excited I am at the thought of taking part in this spectacular historic event especially because this is the first time it is being held. Patrick Mackey, age 28, was an artist from Great Britain, but in 1983 was living in Austria. He began serious running in 1976 at the age of 21 and soon started running sub-three-hour marathons regularly. His lifetime marathon best was 2 hours 22 minutes. Mackey ran his first ultra in 1979, a 50k. For several years he preferred the marathon and 50k distances as opposed to the longer ultras. Spartathlon would be his first time going after big miles, starting his lifetime association with the race. That first year he just hoped to finish and planned to run the entire way with Edgar Paterman of Austria. Ed Dodd, age 37, of Pennsylvania, a math teacher, was one of the three Americans in the field in the inaugural Spartathlon. He had become introduced to running in 1960 in high school when he joined the cross-country team. Into college, he continued running and progressed to running marathons. Dodd ran his first ultra in 1977 at Lake Waramong 50K in Connecticut and became hooked on ultras. By 1983, his best 100-miler was achieved on a track with a time of 18 hours 50 minutes. Dodd was invited to run at Spartathlon by Dan Brannan. Really, the only reason I went was my way was paid. There was no way with three little kids and a high school teacher's salary I could afford to fly to Greece. Dan Brannan called me up and said he had been asked to go, but he couldn't go. The woman who was funding the trip was willing to anybody that he recommended. She was an American woman who married a Greek naval officer. Uh, did I want to go? And I said, sure, I'll go. And so she made all the arrangements. So that's how I got to go. Marvin Skagerberg, age 45, of New York City, was another American in the field. He had accomplished running 405 miles at a six-day race earlier in the year. He said, The interesting thing about Spartathlon is definitely the historic angle, and of course it's a multi-day race which is growing increasingly popular in the United States. John Wallace, 46, of Michigan, was the third American. He was a very experienced ultra-runner and had about 10 100-milers to his name. On the preview bus ride, Dodd and Skagerberg said, I'm just intrigued with the opportunity to run in the footsteps of such a historical figure as Pheidippides. I think uh, most of us here couldn't resist running this Spartathlon uh, because we'd be sharing a course that was run by another human being 2,500 years ago, 25 centuries ago. 
John McCarthy, one of the original three runners from the 1982 trial run, came back to run again. McCarthy said, Well, because I have done it once already, I felt that I had to come back and do it again, now that we're hoping it will become a regular event. And I'm as terrified now as I was this time last year. It's a daunting task, but I think I can do it. In the morning at dawn, the runners were bussed from the hotel to the start at the Stadium of Athens that was rebuilt for the first modern Olympic Games in 1896. Dodd said, Got to go into the stadium and look around, really long straightaways, very short, quick turns. The race started outside the stadium at 7 a.m., ran through the heavy traffic in Athens and down along the Mediterranean. Drusen Marvlier, the runner from Yugoslavia, took the early lead and held it through the first 34 kilometers. Manolis Prokopikis drove a car with a big race timer. He kept up with the first runner all the way from Athens to Sparta. Adams recalled, The first 50 mile into Corinth was very busy traffic-wise. The fumes were horrible and it got hotter as the day went on and no shade along that way and very little in the way of refreshments. Water holes, such as this one, were set up along the entire route, roughly one every five kilometers. Here an athlete could obtain water, for sponging down as well as for drinking, light refreshments and first aid. But most of the stops only had warm water and coke to drink with little food, some rice pudding, cookies and crackers, Pouring warm water on the head did little to help combat the heat. Dodd, without a crew, had to find more support. I remember running into stores on occasion. You'd go through a small town. I'd go into a store to try to find something to drink. Adams added, I can remember going through villages where they were having parties. They seemed to have an all-day party. And the runners going through were just sort of incidental. You grabbed a drink or you stuffed to eat. The food wasn't uh, very palatable. I can remember certainly getting very dehydrated because, you know, there was just literally a big bottle of water left at the side of the road. And that you just help yourself as you went past. At some mountain villages in the evening, farmers sitting in taverns were seen offering runners kebabs off of their plates and the brandy or wine that they were drinking. 30-year-old Dushan Mravier from Yugoslavia has been in the lead since the start and has now covered 31 kilometers. The Yugoslav is followed closely by 47-year-old Alan Fairbrother from Britain. Behind Fairbrother comes Yanis Kouros, a 27-year-old Greek marathon and long-distance runner from Arcadia in the Peloponnesus. Other athletes are already widely separated. By the 44th kilometer, Yanis Kouros has gone into first place, overtaking both the Yugoslav and the first of the British runners. Yanis Kouros crosses the bridge over the Corinth Canal more than two hours ahead of the most optimistic estimate of the race organizers. The first cutoff point was about mile 52 after the Corinth Canal. Runners needed to arrive there by 6 p.m., 11 hours. Many of the runners did not make this cutoff, either because of the lack of training or because of the stifling heat. After Corinth, there were many miles of dirt roads, which made it challenging for those who were mostly road runners. Skagerberg said, 
Long sections of back roads were very nearly trail running. After the course left the highway, we saw only small villages and miles of vineyards, donkeys grazing with ancient wooden pack saddles, and racks of currants drying. After eight hours and about 56 miles, Kuros still held the lead. Kuros has stripped down to the lightest improvised garment on which his race number can be displayed. Three kilometers behind the Greek athlete comes the Yugoslav Mravlier, doggedly maintaining his challenge, a cooling sponge tucked into the top of his vest. Twenty years older than the leading runner, the Englishman Fairbrother lies third, a few kilometers to the rear. Fairbrother is closely followed by the West German Alphonse Everts. There will be no variation in the final order of the first four runners, but the distances that separate them will grow. In the late afternoon, the Austrian Paterman and his English co-runner Patrick Mackey are about 30 kilometers behind the leading athlete. Pacing one another from start to finish, they pass by the ruins of ancient Corinth as the sun goes down. During the evening, children would come running out of each little village to greet the runners. American John Wallace would teach them how to do high fives as he ran by. They would then run into the village and see all the citizens out in front of the cafe cheering them on. After dark, disaster struck Dodd's race. And one time during the night, my light went out. I came up on a Greek runner, or he came up on me. I certainly didn't speak Greek. I don't think he spoke English. But I told him that essentially that the battery had gone out, and he had somebody helping him. We got to a town, and they went into a store with me, and we bought batteries for my headlight. Uh, I'm not sure what I would have done without that, because he was going faster than I was. Out in the dark, there were eerie sounds. Barking animals. I don't know if they were dogs or what, but certainly once it got dark, it was a little bit eerie running down this dirt road in a foreign country, hearing these howlings going on off in the dark. I had never run a trail race at that time. Not that this was a trail race, but it was certainly something very, very foreign. I mean, I was a track and road person, and so this was very unusual. Adams commented, I know when we got to the mountain, it was dark and we had a guide and it was quite surreal looking back down the mountain and seeing all these little twinkly lights as people were climbing up because obviously we had to carry torches. Dodd added, On the mountain, they had people situated at various locations pointing us in the right direction. It wasn't a very difficult mountain. Skagerberg said the final ascent of the mountain was steeper than the last mile up Pikes Peak though the descent down the other side was easier. Adams remembered that there were no course markings, but Dodd said that it wasn't possible to get lost, certainly not on the mountain. He never had any anxiety when it came to a turn because of the number of helpers. Dodd made it to the top and then started his run down. And when I came off the mountain, I said, oh, man, if I don't really run, I'm not going to make the cutoff. So the whole last five miles, I just ran like it was a uh, cross-country race. And that was a big mistake. By the time I got to the 105 cutoff, I was pretty whooped. Much earlier, when Kouros reached the mountaintop, he shouted, Where are you, compatriots? He said his voice echoed off the mountains. 
but his fast pace took its toll, and he chilled and was shivering as he ran down the Arcadia Plains. Curris reached Tegea, 105 miles, at 16 hours, 48 minutes. Just a few minutes before midnight, Kuros enters Tegea, seven hours in advance of the anticipated time. The Tegeans have been advised of his amazingly early approach and turn out to welcome him, proud of this young Greek runner who seems set to win this extraordinary race. Dusham Ravlier, the Yugoslav, follows, nearly two hours behind. Yanis Kuros keeps up his almost mechanical rhythm, not yielding any distance to his closest rival. Many hours later, as Dodd was making his way over the mountain, he came across fellow American Marvin Skagerberg. I remember going through a small town late at night because he was lying on a bench. <laughs> and I asked him how he was feeling. He said, well, not too well, not too well. And I kept going. And then we both made it over the mountain to the checkpoint, the town after the mountain at 105 miles. And you had to be there in 24 hours. I got there about 24, 5, 24, 10, sat down at all dirty from the mountain. I was washing my legs off. Marvin came in, sat down next to me. Skagerberg recalled, At 7.04 a.m., I screamed a very bad word at the gorgeous Greek countryside. Three quarters of a mile short of the 24-hour elimination point, I ground to a halt and walked slowly in. I was doubly disappointed to see Ed Dodd a quarter mile ahead, also eliminated by just a few minutes. The third American, Wallace, had packed it in a few kilometers earlier when he saw that it was impossible for him to make the cutoff. But Dodd explained. And the official came up and said, well, you know, you two guys are last two over the mount, so even though you missed the cutoff, we're going to let you keep going. And Marvin said, that's okay, I'll stop. And I said, oh, great, great, I'll keep going. That was a dumb thing to do. <laughs> but, so I got up and kept going, and within 10 kilometers, I was shot. And I just sat down in an olive orchard, waited for somebody to come pick me up. Dodd was totally out of fuel and badly dehydrated with no crew. He made it to about 112 miles. Skagerberg had a theory about their DNF. We three Americans had probably eliminated ourselves with a tactical error. We had run the first 50-mile sector very slowly, between 9 hours 40 minutes and 9 hours 55 minutes, assuring that we came through the 85-degree day fresh and ready for a good run all night. But the next 55 miles were more difficult than we had anticipated. Steep and rough dirt tracks slowed us down and kept us in time trouble. At Sparta, the British organizers had declared that the winner would not be expected at Sparta, until 10 a.m. or 27 hours. Word has gone ahead to Sparta. The winner is approaching, many hours before he is expected. At a quarter to five in the morning, Kouros is only one kilometer from the statue of Leonidas. Leading townspeople, race officials, and a few citizens of Sparta are waiting at this early hour to greet this seemingly tireless Greek runner, a 20th century Philippides. Kouros recalled, I arrived at 5.50 a.m. in the morning at the crack of dawn. What Pheidippides did going to Sparta just for a message, I'd like to think myself as a messenger. Winner of Spartathlon 83, Yanis Kouros arrives in Sparta the day after he left Athens. Did Pheidippides finish this 250-kilometer run in just under 22 hours? 
averaging more than 11 kilometers or seven miles an hour over such a testing route. Two Spartan girls offer the victor water, symbol of Greek hospitality, from a two-handled cup, faithful copy of a terracotta cup in the Museum of Sparta. The mayor of Sparta places a wreath of olive sprigs on Kouros' head, a hallowed tradition of athletic contests in antiquity. Marvillier finished nearly three hours later, and Fairbrother finished in third, walking it in nearly six hours after Kouros won. Only 16 of the 45 starters made it to the finish in less than 36 hours. Adams kept plugging along. She saw a mountain wolf at dawn. Her mental toughness kept her going. Adams passed Mackie coming down the hill into Sparta. He was having great difficulty. The British runners who had previously DNF'd came along the last stretch to give out bottles of water to the Brits, still running. Adams finished in 32 hours, 37 minutes, and Mackie finished in 32 hours, 55 minutes. During the evening, an award ceremony was held, attended by several thousand people overflowing the city square and cheering from windows and rooftops while bands played. Among the moving tributes paid by leading citizens of Sparta during the awards ceremony, was one that called for a return to the Olympic ideal. We must turn back to the origins of the Olympic ideal. Athletics exercise the body, cultivate the mind, and draw nations together in the common struggle for freedom, democracy, justice, and peace. These ideals are well served by Spartathlon athletes, to whom we offer our heartfelt thanks, at the same time as wishing that each one of them may become a Fidipides, carrying the message of Spartathlon to the ends of the earth. The top three finishers received replicas of ancient urns, each filled with Spartan earth. All the finishers received plaques, and then a dinner was held. Because Koros was an unknown and won by a staggering margin, there were many doubters, especially among the Brits. Adams recalled... The main point of the Spartathlon event was the emergence of Yanis Kouros. You know, he just blew the race apart. Uh, he finished so far in front of everybody else that he was accused of cheating, of getting on a motorbike. Now, that would have been quite possible. So it wasn't inconceivable that that could have happened for a local person who, and Yanis was, he knew the, the route like the back of his hand, he knew the mountains, and of course, nobody knew him other than as a good marathon runner, but not elite. And he wasn't known outside of Greece. So there were huge question marks about his performance. After a day of rest, another dinner was held at the hotel in Athens, mostly attended by the British runners. Dodd said, And I remember them absolutely convinced that Kouros had to have taken a ride. <laughs> there was no doubt in Mike Newton's mind that Giannis had taken a ride. No doubt. Mike Newton was the world record holder for 48 hours and all distances to 500 miles, including six days. Skagerberg added, only time and more verifiable performances will serve to establish the credibility of Giannis Kouros. His time would extrapolate to about 170 miles in 24 hours over a very difficult course. 
A few months later, Kurs was invited to run in a three-day, 200-mile stage race across Austria. They had a car with him the entire time, and he crushed the field again. Kurs was never seen walking, even while passing through 38 stations. His slowest mile during the three days was faster than eight minutes. He won by more than three hours, even with taking a long turn that cost him about 20 minutes. After that race, the ultra-running community started to believe that he was the real deal. Kuras would return to Spartathlon the next year and truly make history. Adams would also go on to achieve ultra-running greatness. Both Yanis Kuras and Eleanor Adams, now Robinson, have become recognized by many ultra-running historians as the greatest ultra-runners of all time. Stay tuned for more Spartathlon history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. (laughs) 